Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Homelessness is as American as Apple Pie by Lori Smith. From Denverite, I'll be reading Highline Canal Conservancy gets $350,000 for the preservation of the 71-mile trail stretch by Kyle Harris. And the inaugural Denver Month of Video, a celebration of moving pictures, kicks off in July by Isaac Vargas. From Westward, I'll be reading What to Do in a Road Rage Situation, Life-Saving Colorado State Patrol Tips by Michael Roberts. And Time Running Out on Six Senses Hotel Project Outside Telluride by Justin Criado. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Homelessness is as American as Apple Pie by Lori Smith, vendor and artist for Street Sense. Is homelessness a rehabilitation problem? I don't think so. Homelessness is not an image problem as previously discussed. Neither is homelessness a matter of rehabilitation. Homelessness means you don't have a home. What is a home? It is defined differently depending on who you ask. For many, not having a home means being unhoused. For others, it is defined more broadly, such as being unsheltered. When we place home in the broader context of humanity, we also see that people have diverse ideas about what they require for shelter and a home. Even within the United States, historically, a home has run the range from the permanent to the nomadic, from Pueblo Cliff, Cliff dwellings and teepees on land held by indigenous farmers to covered wagons and urban cities with planned neighborhoods or people retiring into RV lifestyles. The importance of a home lies in its provision of the needs required. It provides for the safety and health of those inhabiting it. Homelessness is American and a part of the narrative that formed this United States. Homelessness is as apple pie as American it, America itself. It is, in fact, a story that has never left us. The United States formed out of settlement. Settlers arrived from other continents and took the land by what today we would define as squatting, the action of occupying an abandoned or unoccupied area of land or a space that the person does not own. We know that the land of the United States was already held by indigenous people that were displaced by foreign settlers who arrived, occupied, settled, and then retroactively claimed the land formally as the original peoples were pushed out. This country did not start out with rows of ticky-tacky houses. The division of land for the benefit of settlement, also known as the Rectangular Survey System, developed formally with the Land Ordinance of 1785 and has been used as the primary survey method in the United States ever since. Consider George Washington, who not only holds the title of the father of our country, but was a founding father and surveyor. Born in 1732, by the age of 11 he had already inherited Ferry Farm in Virginia, his boyhood home. 
For thousands of years, indigenous Americans had inhabited the area. Archaeologists have unearthed artifacts that are over 10,000 years old, tools associated with bands of people that gathered and hunted there, and pottery associated with native farmers of the area. The first formal European claim to the land was recorded in 1666. By 1710, it had been subdivided to form multiple farms. Washington's father, Augustine, acquired the plantation in a purchase in 1738. Augustine held political office locally, owned several thriving plantations, and was active in businesses that were industrializing the region. This is a pertinent example of the transfer of land from indigenous Americans to the immigrants and the politics of power that came with it. When Augustine died, he left Washington the plantation and all of its slaves. Immigrants who arrived in the Americas were often indentured servants. They were not free and were expected to subsist off watered gruel and lentils. Persistent malnutrition was commonplace. Economic forces had pushed these immigrants out of England, where people were also pushed off their land, and basic daily expenses, like food prices, were high. Landless, displaced English moved into the forests, improvised haphazard te temporary shelters and camps as they became homeless, and quickly became despised as criminals and thieves. Others moved to cities, with no respite there either. Desperate, many began to sign contracts promising their indentured servitude for the costs associated with their passage to the Americas, a ten-week journey. Within a year, a quarter to one-half of these died of disease. Only 7% of indentured claimed the land that they had been promised. While indentured laborers were being imported to America, so were slaves. Jamestown, Virginia, America's first permanent English settlement, held the majority of the first African slaves, Kimbundo-speaking peoples of what is today Angola. However, it would be a mistake to believe that this surge in servitude and slavery was new. Europeans were already actively importing Africans in the slave trade to their home countries. Enslavement was a global phenomenon, one that translated over to colonization, settlement, and conquest in the Americas easily. There were people with money, or capital, and people without. There were those who were part of the business class, and those who were not. There were those who acquired and held land, and landless people without property. The gap between rich and poor had broadened, and it was wealth that colonized and settled the Americas, exploiting poverty, displacement, and slavery in the process. By the time Washington inherited Ferry Farm and was engaged in his studies as a surveyor, he was already part of a well-oiled machine, dividing the land that would become the future United States. Methodical and well-funded, it took the land section by section, pitting poor against poor, displacing original peoples with displaced imported peoples. In the politics of power, wealth never lost its foothold or failed in achieving its goals. In the United States, to hold land, to hold property, to find right, to find personhood, and how one was valued and treated. Washington was born to a land in chaotic upheaval from a competitive land grab, supported by indentured servitude and slavery used to facilitate and develop it further for profit. It required force to maintain, and people were pitted against each other in miserable competition to enable it. Far from the fairy tale fables that later United States citizens were taught to embrace, the reality of Washington's boyhood was stark and harsh. 
It was a reality that had grown like a tidal wave over the hundred years leading up to his birth. As a land speculator himself, and a man of means already, Washington amassed an additional 65,000 acres between 1747 and 1799. It wasn't exclusive to plantation owners. The entire continent was surveyed, both under the English crown and later for the newly formed United States. Currently, our nation is bereft with new homeless daily that continue to outpace those able to exit homelessness. People highlight gentrification, those pushed out of their homes and communities for new property development and rent people can no longer afford. Poverty, homelessness, displacement, and pushing people out are nothing new. Just as England profited in its land grab with displaced persons, property development and real estate investment are promoting a similar modern-day phenomenon, for an example of which we can look back in history. It is how the United States has always operated, systematically and methodically. Our law was codified on it. How we treat each other and our status is closely tied to whether we hold land and property, or are treated as property or contracted if we are seen as holding any value or status at all. The inherent values a human being holds with the inalienable rights therein, as laid out in our Constitution, are in conflict with this much older system. Until we come to terms with this greater question of which measurement we use and value more, valuing people in terms of property and assets, or valuing them as people and human beings first, we are in danger of never rectifying ourselves as a nation with the principles and values by which we pretend to operate versus the reality of the system we are. The next two articles are from Denverite. Highline Canal Conservancy gets $350,000 for the preservation of the 71-mile trail stretch by Kyle Harris. Bikers, hikers, and even horseback riders have a reason to celebrate. Colorado lottery money will help fund the permanent conservation of the Highline Canal. That's the 71 miles of trails and open space stretching from Waterton Canyon in the mountains all the way to the Eastern Plains near Denver International Airport, cutting through Denver, Douglas, Adams, and Arapahoe counties. The canal was built in the late 1800s to import water from the South Platte River to regional farms. Denver Water took over the canal in the 1920s. Since the 1970s, portions of the canal have included a trail that has become one of the longest through the city. The Highline Canal Conservancy works to preserve this land. In total, the Highline Canal boasts 8,000 acres of parks and open space. While much of the project is complete, parts in the Northeast still need work. Great Outdoors Colorado, GOCO, has given the Conservancy a $350,000 grant to help preserve the strip as open space as part of the organization's land acquisition program. The money comes from the Colorado Lottery, which dedicates some of its revenue to parks and open space. Taxpayers committed a portion of lottery revenue to outdoor projects starting in 1992. In total, GOCO has funded over 5,600 projects spanning every Colorado county. GOCOs has spent more than $31 million on Denver projects alone, including some of the largest in the city's history, Sand Creek Regional Greenway Trail, Commons Park, Paco Sanchez Park, and the Cherry Creek Corridor. The funding from GOCO will give the Conservancy the tool it needs to find a way to protect the canal permanently. 
The Conservancy will work with local governments and Denver Water to find a mechanism, like a conser conservation easement, to protect the land as open space. They will know more about the specifics in the fall. It's always been a priority of the Conservancy to get permanent protection for the canal as a recreational, ecological resource for the region, says Susanna Fry-Jones, the group's Director of Programs and Partnerships. The inaugural Denver Month of Video, a celebration of moving pictures, kicks off in July by Isaac Vargas. Video lovers rejoice. The inaugural Denver Month of Video will kick off next month to celebrate all things video. Events planned for the entire month of July will feature video art, video game exhibitions, and performance art for video in nine venues across the city. Curated exhibitions and weekly video screenings will be held in order to promote access for the video curious and space for video creators to showcase their art. The Denver Art Museum will host a special opening night event on Saturday, July 1st from 8 to 9.30 p.m. and will feature a screening of Local Accomplices, a selection of video works and live video performances by Colorado artists. If young me had access to this, I'd be better off said Aidan De La Garza, Month of Video co-founder. De La Garza, member of the Traveling Microcinema Collective Misnomer and collaborator in the Nothing to See Here Contemporary Media Art Project, is no stranger to showcasing video art across the city. Now a contributor of video game curatorial project Dizzy Spell, his long history in curating video spaces has led him here. Alongside Jenna Maurice, a former college professor, widely showcased photography, video, and performance artist, and current resident artist at Redline Contemporary Art Center, the two career video artists and enthusiasts have spent years developing the idea for Month of Video. The concept was born out of their belief that video creators needed more spaces in Denver to show their work. Reality takes place in time, not in still images, Maurice said, explaining what she loves most about the art of video. Video unfolds like the world does. Come to value art with an open mind and ask what is this trying to say to me? Month of Video was able to ensure that artists and curators in the month-long exhibition event receive compensation for their work thanks to the primary sponsorship from local nonprofit Warm Cookies of the Revolution and Arts and Culture Incubator Space Understudy. Month of Video will be composed of a few main components openings and receptions, weekly screenings, and month-long exhibitions. Openings and receptions will consist of one-night events held at galleries and participating art spaces. Screenings will happen every Saturday in July and will consist of one-night themed events for people to check out. Exhibitions will be hosted in galleries and art spaces all month long showcasing video works. Here are all the participating venues. Denver Art Museum, Buntport Theater, Union Hall, The Storeroom, Understudy, Redline Contemporary Art Center, Daniels and Fisher Clock Tower, Glob, and Galapagos Space. The following articles are from Westward. What to do in a road rage situation? Life-saving Colorado State Patrol tips by Michael Roberts. A road rage incident on Interstate 25 in Denver shortly before 3 p.m. on June 13th left two people dead and 25-year-old Stephen Long in police custody. According to the Denver Police Department, 
Two men were riding in one vehicle, and Long was driving along another behind them when they got into some kind of altercation heading north on I-25 around Alameda Avenue. The vehicle in front stopped in the right lane of traffic by the 6th Avenue viaduct, and the two men got out. Long stopped too, though he did not get out of his car. When the passenger of the other car approached, Long reportedly pulled out a gun and shot him. He then drove away onto the 8th Avenue ramp. The driver of the other car followed, and Long allegedly fired multiple shots. The driver fell out of his car and was later found dead by the exit. An off-duty Denver officer alerted the department about the incident, and Long was arrested soon after in northwest Denver. He's being held on two counts of first-degree murder. I-25 was closed for several hours while officers studied the scene. The investigation is ongoing. In the wake of this latest road rage incident, plenty of drivers in the metro area have been wondering how they'd react in a similar situation. And the Colorado State Patrol has some potentially life-saving advice. A few years ago, we caught up with Trooper Joshua Lewis, the award-winning public information officer for the CSP, to talk about what to do during a road rage incident. Unfortunately, there's no black and white rule that will work for every single scenario, he told us, before offering best practices that can be applied in a wide variety of circumstances. The biggest thing is to get yourself away from the danger, Lewis said. That obviously doesn't mean speeding away at 100 miles per hour. It means slow down, separate yourself, take an exit, get yourself out of it, and then, whenever possible, contact the proper authorities. That may include dialing 911. If it's an emergency situation, 911 is appropriate, he noted. Hopefully, you'll have the location, a description of the vehicle, the license plate, and maybe a description of the party, if possible. Lewis stressed, however, that the first thing to do is get away from danger. Don't put yourself in more harm's way in order to get that information. Aggressive behavior on the part of one driver can inspire otherwise calm folks to fly off the handle too, and that's definitely the wrong thing to do, he said. This is where we have to fight our own human nature. We have to realize that most people are not intentionally driving poorly or cutting you off or not using a turn signal as a deliberate, specific offense to another person. It may simply be a matter of distraction, that they weren't paying attention for a few seconds, or maybe they are a bad driver. But ultimately, drivers should not try to take it as a personal offense. Take a few deep breaths and make sure you're being as safe as possible. Of course, many drivers who've unintentionally made someone mad will want to make amends. But according to Lewis, attempting to do so can actually cause more trouble than it avoids. There's nothing that says you need to get out of your vehicle and engage somebody who's coming up to you, he pointed out. And what may be a simple way to indicate that you didn't mean to cut somebody else off may be taken as a sign of aggression. So the best recommendation is don't engage, period. Lewis said that he understands the motivation of drivers who do otherwise. We all understand what can take place. Maybe you cut somebody off or you weaved out of a lane and somebody took great offense. You want to apologize to let them know you had no intention of doing that. So you give a little wave as, as a mea culpa, but if they're upset, they may take it as an aggressive kind of gesture. As much as we might want to engage or even apologize, it's typically best just to separate. 
The same goes for shrugs, smiles, or other facial expressions, according to Lewis. If another driver is already so overwhelmed by indignation that he's giving chase, he may interpret something meant kindly as sarcasm or ridicule. When a furious person is following another driver, other options are available, but they should generally be choices of absolute last resort. If need be, you can drive to a law enforcement office, he said. But if you have a phone and you're having to look up how to get to that place, it's better to call 911, indicate that you're afraid for your life for whatever reason, and then follow what the dispatcher tells you. Then we and dispatch and officers responding will know where you are and what's going on at that moment, rather than you taking an exit and going someplace else. It's harder to find you even if you're coming toward an office of a law enforcement agency, because chances are they didn't receive that call and they have no idea you're coming, he added. Most 911 centers aren't typically located in a lot of actual police departments, especially if they're smaller satellite stations. Driving to one may not mean that they know what's going on in your case, especially if you're in the Denver metro area, where you may change jurisdictions 10 times over the course of 10 miles. So sticking to 911 is still the best course of action in that case. For the most part, Lewis concluded, it mostly boils down to either separating yourself from that situation if it's being caused by someone else, or just letting things go and making sure you're as safe as possible. Time Running Out on Six Senses Hotel Project Outside Telluride by Justin Criado The western slope town of Mountain Village is officially only 28 years old, but the community situated at the base of the world-renowned Telluride Ski Resort has a growing problem. Unlike the long-established town of Telluride, which is tucked into a box canyon, Mountain Village has room to grow, and it's not uncommon for developers to come knocking with big ideas for one-of-a-kind properties that will complement this high-class outdoor playground. The 3.5 square miles of former sheep ranches purchased in 1968 by resort visionary Joe Zoline were initially envisioned as a European-style resort village. In 1978, Ron Allred and Jim Wells bought the property with the goal of creating a pedestrian-friendly core for Mountain Village with sparsely placed single-family residences and a network of nature trails, walking paths, and golf fairways. Incorporated in 1995, the town is now connected to neighboring Telluride by a free gondola system, which opened in November of 1996. It's currently home to approximately 1,500 residents, and developers would like to see that number increase. In early 2022, the Tiara Telluride LLC team brought forth plans for a six-census hotel on a parking lot at the edge of the core. The Florida-based Home Vault Collection, with lead developer Matt Shear, planned to use and amend a 2010 planned unit development that still allows for such a project in the town. Over the past 13 years, the Mountain Village Hotel PUD had already been amended twice to extend its vesting period, which was set to expire last December. In August of 2022, the Mountain Village Town Council voted to extend the PUD vesting rights for a third time through September 2023. But that means time is getting short for sheer. Initially, up to 62 hotel rooms were proposed for the six senses, but the mass and scale, particularly the building's initial height of nearly 100 feet, were questioned and criticized, 
At one point, the town's design review board listed up to 40 conditions the applicant would have to meet in order to gain a favorable recommendation. While that list was whittled down and the board ultimately gave the project its approval last December, the plans still weren't crystal clear and were nearly denied altogether by the Mountain Village Town Council at a March 16th meeting. Eventually, though, Council decided to continue the discussion and postpone the decision, again offering the applicant more time to tweak the plans, addressing such points as on-site parking, employee housing, and traffic concerns. The project will again be considered by Council on Thursday, June 15th, though there currently is no staff recommendation tied to the agenda item. In January, Council made a motion to deny the application and gave direction to the town attorney to draft findings to support such a denial. In March, Council considered the motion to deny. After hearing from the applicant at the March meeting, Council directed staff to address the outstanding questions raised in the staff report, as well as concerns articulated by Council during the public hearing, Mountain Village Town Manager Paul Weiser recaps. Pursuant to Council's direction, staff has worked diligently with the applicant over the course of the last several months. While Weiser notes that there's not necessarily a typical timeline for projects like this, he points to a similar plan for a neighboring hotel that moved through the required process in less than a year behind a brand new PUD. The town received an application for the development of a Four Seasons hotel project at the beginning of 2022, he explains. That project received its approvals within nine months of the applicant submitting its application to the town. So what happened with this Sixth Senses application? Vagueness was certainly part of the problem. When asked about the project's height, by then reduced to 88 feet, during a June 2022 council meeting, Shear became visibly agitated and at one point blamed the town staff for not providing enough feedback. Mountain Village Mayor Leila Benitez called him out, explaining that six months was more than enough time to present a more thorough application. Then, in March, she bluntly asked whether Shear and his team were taking this seriously enough before voting for yet another continuance. Cameron Kelly, who lives directly across from the property, believes trying to amend an extremely old and outdated PUD is another challenge. At the time it was approved, neither the town's current comprehensive plan nor the community development code existed, she says of the documents that spell out requirements for potential developments like this. The mass, scale, and height of the building are not compatible with the surrounding area. She isn't waiting to see if Shear can come up with a plan that works for council. Cameron and her husband, Winston Kelly, filed a lawsuit against the town in late 2022 to make sure it turns down the project and are now organizing a public petition. From a community standpoint, there is no need for another hotel at this time, especially with another one being just newly approved adjacent to this property, Cameron says. The Sixth Senses brand has never been in question. All seven council members have shared publicly that they'd love to welcome such a high-end name to town. But while the minutia of precisely where the garbage disposal facility will be placed and how semi-trucks will access the load-in dock isn't sexy, the town has stressed that those details are absolutely necessary in order for the project to be approved. But officials still aren't sure what they're going to be getting. 
Nikki Richards, executive director of the nonprofit Valley Advocates for Responsible Development in Driggs, Idaho, recently had a front row seat to a similar dog and pony show. Shear and his team were promising to create a dude ranch on the Idaho side of Teton County, just outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We were hopeful with this team when they came in and said they really wanted a VARD endorsement, she says. We thought, okay, VARD would love to work with you enough to be able to say this is a responsible development. Oftentimes, our organizations will get hit with, well, you are anti-development. No, we're not, but we are for responsible development or nothing at all. High Noon Ranch was supposed to be a 532-acre development at the base of the Big Hole Mountains in Teton Valley, but Shear couldn't exactly articulate just what it was going to be, according to Richards, and the county planning and zoning commissioners denied the application in April. This developer came in saying that they wanted to put a dude ranch here. By the time they put together the PowerPoint and spoke at the public hearing, it was like a Scandinavian spa. It just blew up, she adds. In an effort to gain last-minute public support, the Vault Home Collection team hosted a private dinner, then sent an email to the dinner guests asking them to reach out to local officials with some nice words about the project. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. It just didn't pass any of the initial tests, says Richards, who adds that VARD's request for a community forum on the plans hosted by the developer were ignored. But Shear made sure to mention the Mountain Village project during meetings with Teton County officials and talked up High Noon Ranch with Mountain Village, even though neither development was officially approved at the time. Now the company stands to lose two projects within a couple of months, depending on the outcome of the June 15th meeting. If Mountain Village officials decide to let the amorphous project continue to drag out, Richards says that VARD would be willing to shed more light on the shortcomings of this particular development team. Even though Valley Advocates for Responsible Development lives in Teton Valley, our mission carries beyond the scope of Teton Valley, she says. We would never turn our back on a community that's dealing with the same thing. We will share information. We will help them fight or hold hands or whatever it looks like through any public process or hearing. You just can't blow this much smoke in one town and then go do it in the next one if it doesn't work. Congresswoman Yadira Caraveo pushing to make SNAP benefit exemptions permanent by Katie Cheshire. Yadira Caraveo, who represents Colorado's 8th Congressional District, introduced a bill on Tuesday, June 13th, to permanently solidify work exemptions for veterans, unhoused people, and former foster youth under the age of 25 to qualify for Special Nutrition Assistant Program benefits. In the debt ceiling agreement passed on June 3rd, legislators determined that the aforementioned groups would be exempt from recently imposed work requirements for adults who are between the ages of 50 and 54. Previously, only those between 18 and 49 had to work for at least 20 hours a week to receive food benefits from SNAP. Now, those up to 54 must do so too, which the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimates will lead to hundreds of thousands of citizens being at risk of losing benefits, including 9,000 people in Colorado. Caraveo, along with fellow Democratic representatives Johanna Hayes of Connecticut and Amelia Sykes of Ohio, is pushing to make the work exemptions permanent for vets, 
former foster youth and those experiencing homelessness to ensure that they aren't among that number. On June 13th, the legislators introduced the Food Access and Stability Act to do just that. As a pediatrician, I've seen how important SNAP benefits are to so many families, Caraveo says, referencing her career before she became a lawmaker. So when I saw that we were including in those benefits people who are vulnerable and would have otherwise been subjected to onerous work requirements, but that these benefits ended in 2030, it really seemed important to make sure that we weren't pulling some benefits away from them in seven years. In 2022, SNAP provided aid to more than 540,000 Colorado residents. The work exemptions will mean that 78,000 more people across the country can access SNAP, even accounting for the older adults who would lose benefits thanks to the debt ceiling agreement. Caraveo estimates that around two-thirds of her patients used SNAP. Part of what frustrated me about being in a clinic and eventually drove me to Congress was how hard it was for people to do just basic things for their families, she said. People were working two, three jobs and still really having difficulty providing basics for their kids. She says she had multiple conversations each day with patients who told her SNAP allowed them to not have to stress about feeding their kids, while also enabling them to use their money on other necessities. Those who have served our country and who are struggling with homelessness or who were part of a foster care system that places additional stresses in their lives, it's particularly important for them to be able to know that they have at least a supplement to what is going to keep, keep them fed, Caraveo says. Local groups are worried about the new work requirements and the effect they might have on people with low incomes. One of our biggest concerns is these work reporting requirements on very low-income households that are housed could push those households into homelessness, says Kathy Alderman, Chief Communications and Public Policy Officer for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. If they were using these SNAP benefits for food and they now have to cover the costs of food, they might have to take money away from what they're paying for housing. According to Alderman, people not working 20 hours a week could be taking care of children or living on fixed retirement incomes, particularly in that 50 to 54-year-old group. The work exemptions Caraveo is pushing to make permanent are critical, she says. These exemptions for people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and folks in the foster care system could be a lifesaver, Alderman praises. We know that most of these individuals are living on very low, fixed, or no income, and access to food benefits could be the only way that they could actually get the food they need to survive. Even if people who are homeless can access SNAP benefits, it still doesn't make sense to push more people into poverty with work requirements, Alderman contends. According to the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, 50% of all Colorado renters are cost burdened. These individuals pay more than 30% of their household income for rent and are the ones at the greatest risk of homelessness when SNAP becomes harder to get. Homelessness is terrible for the individuals that have to experience it from a health perspective, from a mental health perspective, from a safety perspective, Alderman says. It's also really expensive for taxpayers, for people to be in this emergency cycle of homelessness using emergency services like the ER, like detox facilities, like shelters. And so it's really short-sighted to try to cut costs on these programs. This, 
coupled with the fact that city resources such as food banks could be stretched thin because of fewer SNAP benefits going out, makes the argument for a permanent system much louder. Sarah Gregory, Public Policy Coordinator for Feeding Colorado, a coalition of food banks in the state, says the group is still waiting for guidance on how the debt ceiling changes will impact its work. Our network is already in the midst of an unprecedented increase in demand of emergency food services over the past few months, she says in a statement. The debt ceiling bill will likely put more pressure on the state's hunger relief system, underscoring the urgency for Congress to pass a farm bill that protects and strengthens key federal nutrition programs like SNAP. Caraveo is helping lead the charge on the farm bill as she works to gather more sponsors, including Republicans, for the Food Access and Stability Act. I'm hoping that it gets a fair hearing and shake through the process of having a markup and getting people to vote on it, she says, of the act. It's very important to make sure that we, as both parties, are supporting our veterans in particular, as well as those who are vulnerable. Denver makes homeless safe parking areas permanent, looks to expand, by Benjamin Neufeld. Around 8.40 p.m. on June 7th, Denver police responded to a call of criminal mischief on the 1300 block of Grant Street. On the other side of that call was Matt Lash, a man living in his car who had spotted a group of vandals messing with a nearby porta potty. The cops are on their way, Lash told the hooligans moments after exiting his rusty Chevy Suburban and being told to get out of here by the group. For what? the vandals fired back. You're trespassing on private property and you're damaging property, Lash replied. The 34-year-old Lash could not have made the same call before he started staying at a safe lot, private parking lots where people who are living in their vehicles can stay overnight without the threat of being kicked out or bothered. Because the safe parking areas are sanctioned and on private property, those staying there have the same right to police protection as people who are housed, so they can spend their days working or looking for jobs instead of worrying about where they're going to sleep or about being harassed or moved along. The safe lots are coordinated and managed by the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative, CSPI, and located on the private property of third-party hosts that agree to let their parking lots be used by the nonprofit. People hoping to stay at a CSPI safe lot must go through a screening process and background check. Then the host of the safe lot they hope to use must sign off. Safe parking areas, along with similar initiatives like safe outdoor spaces, were temporarily approved as an unlisted but authorized land use in Denver's zoning code at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. As Denver City Councilwoman Robin Nike explained at a council meeting on June 5th, our zoning code allows the zoning administrator to authorize uses that are not otherwise contemplated by our zoning code. That authorization was set to expire in December of 2023. But at the June 5th meeting, council members voted 12 to 1 to codify the temporary use in the city's permanent zoning code. Essentially, council voted to allow safe parking areas and sanctioned encampments to continue past December. Building on that, council may now vote to add two more safe parking areas in the city in addition to the two that already exist. At the First Baptist Church of Denver in Capitol Hill, and at the First Universalist Church of Denver on East Hampton Avenue. On June 7th, 
City Council's Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee voted to advance Resolution 230723 to a final vote in front of the full body. If passed at a council meeting on June 20th, the resolution will increase the budget of the city's contract with CSPI from $150,000 to $750,000. Including the two lots in Denver, CSPI currently operates 13 safe lots throughout Metro Denver. Still, Executive Director Terrell Curtis says, we can only accommodate 20% of the people who call us at any given time. Lash first stayed at a safe lot at the Restoration Christian Fellowship Church in Aurora. A few months ago, he says, the woman running that lot recommended him to be a lot operator. He got the job and moved over to the safe lot at First Baptist Church of Denver a few months ago. In addition to having a spot to stay for the night, Lash is paid to keep an eye on things at the safe lot and keep the area and porta potty in good shape. Lash says he once made six figures building custom homes in Grand Lake until an accident with a drill left him with radial neuropathy. As a result, he's unable to lift or hold more than 10 pounds without his arm going numb. Testifying at the June 5th City Council meeting, Lash said it took his workers' compensation insurance three months to get me money. Because of that, he says, he was evicted from his $500 a month apartment. Now he's waiting for his insurance to approve a second surgery for his arm so he can get back to work at a job he has lined up to remodel a unit at an HOA in town. In the meantime, CSPI is a godsend, he says. If this safe lot wasn't here, I don't know where I'd be, he told council members, noting how the people he's met at the safe lot are good people that really just need an opportunity. Derek Woodbury, Communications Director for the Denver Department of Housing Stability, which presented the proposal to amend the city's contract with CSPI and increase the budget on June 7th, says places like safe lots are intended to get people on the right path. Shelter alternatives like safe parking are incredibly important to ensuring that episodes of homelessness are rare, brief, and one-time occurrences, he tells Westward. We have seen roughly one-third of guests at Denver's existing two safe parking sites exit to permanent housing. Through this proposed contract amendment, we're looking forward to doubling the number of safe parking sites in Denver and extending the contract term from one to three and a half years, which will greatly support our department's goal of reducing unsheltered homelessness by 50% over five years. Director Curtis says that if the resolution goes through, the budget increase will allow CSPI to open two new safe lots in Denver that will accommodate at least 40 more people. Denverites who live in their cars make up a growing and often hidden population of homeless individuals, many of whom are still working, Curtis notes. Most of the people that come to us are homeless for the first time, she says. 40% of the people who come to us are already employed. Many residents who fall into homelessness are in situations that prevent them from going to a shelter, she adds. The people we're serving aren't always able to go to shelters. Sometimes they have pets. Sometimes they are a heterosexual couples. According to Curtis, Denver shelters don't accommodate man-woman pairings. Often, the simple act of going into a shelter compounds the stigma and shame they are feeling, which causes individuals to stay away, she says. Communities are beginning to recognize that what we've been doing for the past few years isn't working, Curtis says, but now the city has really stepped up 
especially in these years since COVID. She cites the example of a retired woman who was living on a fixed income. She's 80. She was a college professor and a writer and became homeless when the building she was living in was sold, causing her rent to go up to an amount she could no longer afford. The woman decided to dedicate her income to her last asset, her car, and began living at a CSPI-managed safe lot. We supported her with case management services until she could get an apartment, Curtis remembers, adding that the woman finally managed to find permanent housing last fall. Kenton Kuhn, the property chair of the church that hosts Lash's safe lot, says he's overjoyed being able to help people get back on their feet. Overall, it's been a very positive experience for us, he adds. Kuhn says that they've had as many as 12 people staying at their safe lot, though right now they're at 8. The church plans to host the safe parking area until it begins construction on the apartment high-rise members hope to eventually build in the parking lot. Curtis says that CSPI has not yet determined where the two new safe lot locations will be if their budget increase is approved, but the future is bright. There are a couple of places around Denver that have potential, she says. To learn more about CSPI or apply to stay in a safe lot, visit the CSPI website. 10 Cool and Kooky Colorado Attractions and Collections by Skylar McKinley Colorado is full of natural wonders, but the stunning settings have also inspired a lot of man-made marvels. Sure, you can beat the heat by whiling away your summer at Waterworld or within Meow Wolf Denver's air-conditioned walls, but wouldn't you rather get out and see some of this state's most colorful attractions this summer? For an experience worth writing home about, I tail it to one, or all, of these dozen spots that are unlike anything else anywhere else. Cano's Castle and Tonito. It's hard to say how many hundreds of hubcaps and beer cans line the walls of Cano's Castle, but you'll have plenty of time to think about that as you approach Antonito, as you'll see the gleaming thing from miles away. Since you can't actually enter Cano's Castle, it's a good thing that it's at its most remarkable from the outside. Take it all in from the roadside long enough, though, and there's a chance you'll meet its creator, Dominic Cano Espinosa who may insist that it was God who built the castle and that Jesus lives inside. While a fire last year destroyed a portion of the compound, the twin spires are still standing and the site is still very much worth the trip to Antonito. While there, grab lunch at Dos Hermanas Mexican-American Steakhouse for heaping helpings, of course, of authentic Southern Colorado Mexican fare. The Sasquatch Outpost and Sasquatch Encounter Discovery Museum, Bailey. There have been just 130 Bigfoot sightings in Colorado, according to the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, compared to well over five times that many in Washington state. So it seems like the famous cryptid may just take in Colorado's blue skies whenever she or he gets sick of the dreary Pacific Northwest. In your own travels, consider a detour to the Sasquatch outpost in Bailey, right off Highway 285. There, you'll find the western U.S.'s largest selection of Sasquatch souvenirs alongside more typical sundries and camping gear. If you're not enough of a believer to slap a Bigfoot sticker on your bumper, head on into the on-site Discovery Museum for a few animatronic scares and photo ops and to evaluate various pieces of evidence, from photos to videos to plaster casts, and sure, 48 inches of suspected Sasquatch scat 
found nearby. Afterward, as your appetite allows, grab a dog at the recently reopened Coney Island Boardwalk. May Natural History Museum and Golden Eagle Campground, Colorado Springs. If this year's historic Miller Moth infestation has left you wanting more, what's wrong with you? Make a beeline to the May Natural History Museum in Colorado Springs. This is one of the world's largest private displays of tropical bugs, with 7,000 perfectly preserved insects filling case after case after case in what amounts to the life's work of amateur naturalist James May and his son, John. The museum proclaims that there is a bug for everyone, from butterflies to beetles to spiders to scorpions and, yes, moths. If that's not enough to get your wings flapping, book a stay at the adjacent family-owned Golden Eagle Campground, complete with hiking trails, stocked fishing ponds, campfire rings, and a playground. Both are hard to miss. Just turn on to Rock Creek Canyon Road from Highway 115 next to the statue of Herkimer, world's largest beetle, a 10-foot-high replica of the West Indian Hercules beetle. Lee Maxwell Washing Machine Museum, Eaton. All sorts of singular characters populate Colorado's windswept eastern plains, though perhaps none more surprising than Lee Maxwell, the world's foremost expert on antique washing machines. His eponymous Washing Machine Museum is a 20,000 square foot shrine to the historical significance of the washing machine, which he argues in his book, Save Women's Lives, History of the Washing Machines, was as significant an invention as the radio, computer, automobile, and television. If that claim agitates you, take the tour of the more than 1,400 washing machines in his collection, proclaimed the world's largest by Guinness World Records. You'll count yourself lucky to have experienced some good, clean fun with Maxwell as your guide, and he's as deeply funny and interesting at 93 as he was when he started the collection in 1985. The museum is open by appointment only, with booking information and 23,000 washing machine patents at oldwash.com. Rambler Ranch, Elizabeth. You'd never expect Sleepy Elizabeth, population 1,675, to host one of the most significant car museums in the world. But then again, everything about this 60,000 square foot, 700 plus car collection seems unlikely. Terry Gale's Rambler Ranch, the largest known collection of Nash and AMC vehicles, started with a painstaking restoration of his father's 1954 Nash Ambassador. It's grown to include hundreds of cars in six buildings, including some real rarities, like the one-of-one one 1955 Nash Ambassador Pininfarina Special, the world's only complete collection of the themed Westerner, Briarcliff, and Mariner editions of the 1967 AMC Rebel Cross Country Station Wagon, and a Jeep Grand Wagoneer Stretch Limousine, one of only 60 ever made. While those impress, the collection staggers with the sheer number of working-class cars that turn heads to this day, like AMC Pacers, Eagles, and Gremlins. The Key Room at Seven Keys Lodge, Estes Park. Between 20,000 and 30,000 keys line the ceiling and walls of the Key Room at Seven Keys Lodge, formerly the Bald Pate Inn. Both names come from the 1913 best-selling mystery novel, Seven Keys to Baldpate. 
It's billed as the world's largest collection of keys, though some items boast an impossible and largely unprovable provenance, such as the alleged keys to Westminster Abbey, the White House bathroom, Robin Hood's Sherwood Forest, and Adolf Hitler's desk. Others, like the keys to Greeley's first town jail, the first United Airlines mainliner, and Columbia University's long-demolished class of 1988 gates, are presented alongside official credentials from people and places the world over that have donated their keys to the collection. Contribute to Colorado history by adding your own after booking a stay or popping in for an after-hike snack or cocktail, since the lodge is just steps away from the Lily Lake Trailhead. Denver Museum of Miniatures, Dolls, and Toys, Lakewood Now settled into its new digs in Lakewood after decamping from the historic Pierce McAllister Cottage in City Park West, the Denver Museum of Miniatures, Dolls, and Toys is still fundraising to open an additional 7,000 square feet of ADA-accessible space on its second floor. It's a big goal for a museum dedicated to the tiny things in life, and your $6 admission fee, with cheaper rates for kids, will help. Tykes will delight in the hundreds of toys from every era in the pantheon of playtime, including collections ranging from Star Wars to Harry Potter and beyond, while adults will get a kick out of the staggering amount of detail in and around everything from high-end artisan dollhouses to ivory, silver, and gold-carved miniatures. With 20,000 pieces filling out the collection, there's something here certain to please you in a big way, no matter how old or young at heart you might be. The Co-Share Museum at Otero College, La Junta. La Junta's Co-Share Museum is one of those places that's both famous and infamous, for better and for worse. Its kiva, or round room, purports to host the world's largest self-supported log ceiling, comprising 627 logs in a toothpick-inspired design initially deemed an architectural impossibility. Equally impressive is the fact that the kiva, the surrounding museum, and its world-class collection of Native American artifacts, pottery, textiles, and Western art, including paintings by Joseph Henry Sharp, Burt Phillips, and other founders of Taos Society of Artists, came together as a project of the bootstrapping local Boy Scout troop. And then you learn that those largely non-Native Boy Scouts came to afford all this by touring the country, wearing Native attire over painted skin, performing an interpretive dance decried by Hopi and other Native leaders as culturally appropriative and religiously exploitive. In that way, the Kosher Museum serves as a crystalline reminder that the European-American people's accomplishments here in the American West, no matter how impressive, can never be separated from the theft that made them possible. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.